Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Joe Leto, and I'm the production manager of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform encompassing finance, technology, and politics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And just as we do at our global SALT conferences, we aim to both empower big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. And we are very excited today to welcome Siki Ballard to SALT Talks. Siki is the founder of, and chief executive officer of Good Tree Capital, a financial technology firm that grants loans to vetted, licensed cannabis companies. After graduating from the University of North Carolina, Siki spent two years as a Peace Corps volunteer, working with small businesses in the Republic of Georgia. During his time in Georgia, Siki became passionate about the role of capital in the creation of wealth and economic development. After leaving the Peace Corps, Siki earned his MBA from Harvard University and subsequently spent years working for Procter & Gamble and Amazon. In 2015, Siki founded Good Tree Capital with the goal of balancing available economic opportunities for qualified borrowers. Moderating today's interview is Sarah Kuntz, who actually just had her salt talk last week with Anthony. Sarah is the managing director of Clio Capital. Sarah founded LA Dodgers-backed ProDay and has served as a senior advisor at Bumble, where she focused on their corporate VC arm, Bumble Fund. Sarah has been named a future innovator by Vanity Fair, Forbes Magazine 30 Under 30, and a top 25 innovator in tech by Cool Hunting. She's been recognized for her work by Business Insider as a 30 under 30 woman in tech and top African-American in tech and pitch book top black VC to watch. She's also honored as a top woman in STEM by Create and Cultivate and Marie Claire Magazine named her a young gun to watch. Mark Andreessen named her one of his 55 unknown rock stars in tech. If you have any questions for Siki during today's talk, please enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen and now I will turn it over to Sarah to conduct today's interview. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. I'm so excited to be back here and to be talking with Siki about all things wealth creation, debt, the economy, and my favorite coping mechanism besides wine during COVID, weed. So um, with that, uh, Siki, you know, why don't you, we just heard your background, which is amazing, but, but why don't you kind of give it to us in your own words, how you ended up starting your company. Absolutely. Uh, I uh, am a product of rural North Carolina. My hometown has a population of 800 people. Um, and I came from a, a huge family. Uh, and uh, I always looked up to my sister, uh, who was kind of a boss, uh, you know, when we were growing up. She. She was uh, MVP of her high school basketball team three years in a row, which is crazy to me. It's like you come on as a freshman and then sophomore year, you're just beasting on all these people. Uh, and while she's doing that, she also graduated valedictorian. So it's like, what, what, what's not to love? And so you know, she went to governor's school. I went to governor's school. She went to University of North Carolina. I went to University of North Carolina. And that's pretty much where our paths uh, diverged. Um, from there, as uh, Joe mentioned in the introduction, I joined the Peace Corps in the Republic of Georgia. Uh, and for those who are as geographically challenged as I am, uh, Georgia is kind of sandwiched uh, between Russia and Turkey with the Black Sea to the, to the west. And I was stationed in this place called uh, Batumi, uh, which I might get beat up for this analogy, but Batumi is sort of like the Miami 
of the former Soviet Union, uh, uh, which, you know, it was a pretty cool place to be. And while I was there, um, I convinced the organization that I was working in um, to, uh, 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 to do this idea that I pitched them that was really a rip from something that I'd learned in college, the Carolina Challenge, and what we called it the Batumi Challenge. And really what we did was uh, we went out into the community and we, you know, prospected for um, great companies. So we were in the bazaars talking to entrepreneurs um, and really getting a sense of who the, you know, the highest uh, potential companies were. And then we gave them money. Uh, and when we saw that money come back to us, um, it really sort of sparked this curiosity around, uh, you know, what does it mean to find the most efficient, most profitable destinations for capital, um, deploy that capital, and then see the wealth that's created at the place where you've deployed it, as well as, you know, when it's returned to the investor. Um, and so, um, we ended up scaling that uh, to Armenia and Azerbaijan, but I was really interested in how I scale it to be much larger than that. Um, uh, because uh, um, to me, this is, this is one of the sort of fundamentals of capitalism. Um, and so to answer that question uh, and lots of other questions, uh, I went to Harvard uh, to earn my MBA uh, and it was a phenomenal experience um, uh, and really sort of, um, I think, taught me how to structure my thinkings around these systems that are in place to uh, uh, um, suss out where those best opportunities are, both on the debt side and the equity side. And you know, after about five years in corporate America, uh, um, most recently at Amazon, um, I started my company. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I'd say the rest is history uh, from there. I love it. Um, so t the Miami of the former USSR, I, I, the mind really actually boggles at that one. Uh, interesting, interesting. Um, well, more questions about that one later. Um, so, you know, I would love to just sort of like amazing background, like wild backstory. I actually, fun fact, right after this, um, am sitting in and, and, uh, doing a HBS, Harvard Business School class um, around VC and PE and the lack of oh, diversity. Um, and so, so uh, I, will, I will be in your old stomping grounds virtually soon. But um, can we talk a little bit about like just the fundamental importance, right, of and role of kind of access to capital as a means of wealth creation, economic growth, you know, the way that we buy nice things, like, like why, why does money matter? tell a bunch of people who probably like me are totally money obsessed. Right, right. I mean, it's the lifeblood. It really is. Uh, when money freezes up, economies collapse. We, we saw that during the Great Recession. And, you know, the way I structure it in my mind, you know, you've got capital up here and one column of that is debt and the other column of that is equity. My corner of the sandbox, what I've spent the last five years of my life really working on is on the debt side of the equation. But, you know, when I think about um, the fundamental sort of uh, inefficiencies in terms of how capital is deployed, I think the same fundamental problems exist in both, except they manifest themselves in different ways. And I'll touch on equity really quickly before we go to debt. Um, you know, I think one of the most interesting statistics I, I, I've heard is around where capital goes in equity. So, you know, you've got uh, private equity under that, you've got venture capital firms, you've got these investment banks, 
they, they represent a pretty diverse source of capital, but if we sort of narrow in on one part of that, which is venture capital, this is your world, so you know, I know a whole lot less about it, but if we narrow in on venture capital, 98% of all the billions sloshing around in venture capital go to men, which to me is, is, is really interesting because what it says is, you know, when- Sorry, just clarify, what, what color are those men? <laughs> they are uh, white men. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I was going to touch on that, but but you know, it, it, you know, when I think about it, what it really says, the inverse of that is, you've got ten companies in front of you, and instead of reviewing all ten of those companies, you're really sort of myopically focused on half of them and really missing the opportunities that the other half might present to you. And then you know, if you put that to the side. Um, another really sort of awe-inspiring statistic is that 80-90% of all returns in venture capital accrue to the top 20 firms. You know, there must be hundreds, maybe thousands of venture capital firms, family offices out there. Half of them fail to return uh, more than 1x what their limited partners invested with them. And so what that tells me is that the existing model is clearly not serving investors. Um, and uh, to me, it almost represents a breach of their fiduciary responsibility to their limited partners that, you know, they've really sort of uh, taken this siloed approach to investing rather than expanding the aperture of deal flow um, to really taking in half the population, which is women, taking in 30% of the population, which is people of color, to your earlier point. And maybe, just maybe, when you look at everybody, you might make your LP some money. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I am really encouraged by the constellation of venture capital firms um, such as Clio Capital, such as Harlem Capital, such as Backstage Capital, that's really um, trying to serve this underserved market. And uh, my, my hope is that one day you all are eating these bigger guys' lunch. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know, I really see the fundamental problem existing in both, both debt and equity. And, I love what's going on in equity, and I'm sort of working in my corner of the sandbox to figure this problem out on the debt side as well. Awesome. Um, and so, so kind of talk to us a little bit about, you know, we, we sort of, I think, have a general idea of how it's working kind of in private markets, right? Venture PE, um, you give more divert, you give money to more diverse managers and they invest in more diverse companies and and that's sort of the flywheel public markets i think with the the push towards you know more diverse boards and, and more diverse company leadership um you know it, that that's also starting to happen but but debt feels like and that sort of trickles down into hedge funds as well or up hopefully but debt is like this other area right so what does debt kind of currently look like and and you know, what are some of the ways broadly maybe, and then we'll, we'll zoom in a little bit more to you specifically, but what are some of the ways broadly that, that change can happen using debt capital, um, both everything from individual loans all the way up to the big, huge, you know, providers of debt? How does that start to change and what does that look like right now? Right. So, so I'll, I'll answer this question with an experience. Um, back in 2015, and this was actually the catalyst to me starting my business, back in 2015, a guy named Dylan Roof went into Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, sat for Bible study for an hour before opening fire on the nine people who were in attendance, killing them all. Um, my mother's side of the family uh, 
they traced their roots to Charleston. So, you know, this is pretty close to home for us. And so my dad thought it'd be a good idea if we took a road trip to pay our respects to the victims. And during the drive, um, really so, uh, I guess I'll say, um, just grounded by the gravity of the moment, uh, the question that I asked him was, how did we end up here? Uh, to me, it felt very regressive. It felt like as a country, we were taking steps backward, not forward. And his answer to that was really interesting. He said, you know, seeking any marginalized group of people in America can't, as a matter of, you know, pragmatism, expect to sustain social and political advances unless those social and political advances are built on a firm economic footing. And he used his own sort of experience and uh, uh, as a case in point. So when I was a kid, he owned a logging company. People would pay him to clear commercial residential property. He'd take that lumber, sell it to the local paper mill. And he had a, you know, your quintessential American small business, very successful. And he wanted to expand outside of North Carolina to surrounding states. But in order to do that, he had to uh, modernize his equipment. And so he went to all these banks in the area um, applying for loans to modernize his equipment. And he was rejected by every single bank for every single loan. And his hypothesis was that this didn't have anything to do with the merit of his business, but instead it had everything to do with the color of his skin. Um, and, you know, it's very well known that there are two primary ways of building wealth in America. It's either through home ownership or enterprise, you know, small business ownership. If you can't get the loan to purchase that starter home, or if you can't get the, the working capital loan to grow your business, then you, your ability to, you know, grow wealth over time is undermined for that reason. And so um, I went back to Seattle, um, you know, employed at Amazon at the time, and I did some research and found that he's exactly right. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston has some pretty excellent analysis on this question, but if I go into a bank, Sarah, and a white guy goes into a bank, and we are exactly the same from a balance sheet perspective, so same assets, same you know, cash, you know, same money coming in, same debt levels, we're literally the same person on paper, we, we're only controlling for my race, if we apply for a small business loan, I'm 2.7 times more likely to be rejected for that loan. And if I'm fortunate enough to be approved for that loan, I'm going to pay on average 180 basis points more in interest. And this is true not just for small business lending, it's true for mortgages, personal loans, car loans, and it's also true for women to a slightly lower degree. And so the root cause of this problem, which sort of gets at the heart of what we do, the root cause of this problem is that, you know, when my dad or when Sally goes into that bank to apply for the loan, they're sitting across the table from a loan officer who's bringing to that encounter all of his conscious and subconscious biases. So they're not just looking at my dad on paper and evaluating him based on that. They're also judging the way he speaks English or the way he dresses because, you know, he looks like a trucker. Uh, and then they make decisions based off of subjective information that really has no bearing on whether that person, my father, or the woman sitting across the table from them are going to service the loan. And so our critical insight was, you know, what happens when you remove the human from the equation and you replace that human, that loan officer, with a model? that is evaluating creditworthiness based exclusively on observable financial and operating 
performance data about the company. And then, you know, once you use this data to make the decision, then really the playing field levels out a lot. And the people who are ultimately declared to be credit worthy, which are the people who ultimately receive the financing, they start to look a lot more like society at large. Um, and so my work for the last five years has really been built around um, uh, uh, um, building that capability uh, and evaluating credit worthiness and then deploying that capability specifically in cannabis for now. Cool. Kind of reminds me of in Pretty Woman, right? Where Julia Roberts goes back in and is like, do you work on commission? Big mistake. Big and like, mistake. <laughs> and that, but that's, that's the reality, right? Like uh, judging people based on what they look like before you know, it's not even the content of their character, let's be real, it's the content of their, their pocketbooks, right? right? You really want to make sure you know who has money. And, you know, this is a totally different world, but even in the tech world, the average tech billionaire, right? Jeff Bezos, before the glow up, did not look like he was about to be the richest man in the world, right? right. Big mistake, right. huge. So you <laughs> never know who those people are. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of the current state of banking, right? It feels like the banking world has just absolutely, like, I feel like I'm having, you know, kind of flashbacks to 2008, like, level craziness, right? Like, Wells Fargo seems like they can't go more than three seconds with a new CEO before everything hits the fan again. Like, I, I don't know what they did in the past life, but their karma is nasty. They're and, criminals. you know, <laughs> so, so, like, but there, there, there is that. Okay, that's what they did in their past life. That There is mm -hmm. that. But, like, it's not just them, right? Bank closures, litigation, like, kind of walk us through what in the world is happening in banking right now. Yeah, I mean, so I, I kind of think about banking from a macro perspective. And um, I, I think it is one of those industries that's really ripe for disruption. And um, a big part of why I think it's ripe for disruption is because there operating models really rely heavily on these sort of extensive network of brick and mortar uh, branches that are full of humans that are staffing it, whether those humans are tellers or whether those humans are loan officers sort of seeing people like my father and Sally. Um, and I think what's going on is that they're struggling to adapt to how modern consumers consume financial services. Um, I was with a borrower in Massachusetts and we had to go into Wells Fargo um, in rural uh, uh, central Massachusetts. And I sat there for maybe three, four hours and didn't see a single person come into the bank the entire time I was there. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm projecting this experience uh, generally, but to me, that was the canary in the coal mine. It's saying, you know, if, if banks don't adapt um, and bring technology in as sort of central to how they deliver their financial services, I don't believe they're going to survive in the long term. And uh, personally, my view is that technology is the answer to, to what I view as systemic bias in uh, the provision of financial services. And specifically, you know, what I do is really focus on the debt side of the equation. And so if you've got these massive banks like Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, all the way down to your regional local banks, you know, Coastal Carolina Bank of, of North Carolina, um, you know, I think you're seeing varying degrees of this struggle to adapt. Um, and so, you know, 
my view is that similar to on the venture capital side, you know, I mentioned backstage capital, I mentioned you know, Clio. Um, I see the same thing happening on the debt side of the equation as well. You've got companies like Lending Club, Funding Circle, that are really bringing technology to bear to create this digitally native experience for, um, for, their, uh, for their customers. Lending Club up to very recently was only a lender. They recently acquired um, a bank. So they've obviously got ambitions to be able to provide a broader array of financial services to people, but do it in a way that is uh, sort of central, uh, uh, digital uh, and driven by technology. And so, you know, macro level, um, this to me seems to be a trend that is unavoidable. And those who are building those technological models today, I think are eventually going to be the ones who are providing the majority of financial services to clients in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's, I totally agree with you. Um, so kind of the last point I think we'll touch on with, with the sort of traditional banking piece, um, you know, I was telling you the story in our prep call and, um, you know, I was sitting once with a, a household name billionaire um, who's a massive, you know, philanthropist billionaire pledged the whole thing. Um, and, and, and somehow, and they'd grown up in the South, like in the 60s, and somehow the topic of redlining came up. And they looked at me and I said, Sarah, what's redlining? And I, I basically had an out-of-body experience because I was like, <laughs> you have a thousand people who work for you to like tell you about issues. And, you know, so, so just in case we have any other billionaires in the audience who might need a quick refresher, um, talk to us a little bit about, because you touched on this earlier, home ownership, but redlining, what is it, you know, what does it mean and what has it meant for, for wealth creation, um, particularly around uh, racial lines? Absolutely. So I, I am joining you all from the south side of Chicago. I, I live in Bronzeville and Chicago was one of the epicenters across the nation for redlining. And what it meant here um, was that you would have banks, you know, uh, providers of capital literally draw red lines around majority black communities. And uh, uh, within those red lines, they wouldn't make loans. Uh, and, you know, this is at a time when the federal government is providing all kinds of backing to banks to encourage the creation of the middle class. Uh, and so when you had these, uh, these communities that were, as a matter of policy, both public policy and uh, lending policies at banks across the nation as being excluded from where they would target their investments, then what you started to see was uh, a sort of a cynical cycle. These communities weren't able to get the financing that they, they needed, um, then that meant that their uh, property values went down. It meant that they weren't able to build and sustain their businesses over time. And so if you just sort of play this out over the long term, what you start to see are failing communities. Um, uh, what you start to see is uh, uh, a lack of investment in human potential, uh, and it's driven by, uh, you know, um, you know uh, uh, racism rather than by, you know, anything related to merit uh, at all. And so, you know, I, I think that that was a strategic error on the part of the country. I thought it was, and I, I think it's, a, and I continue to think it's a strategic area on the part of uh, financiers. To still to this day, um, Apple, uh, as an example, um, is under investigation uh, by the state of New York for charging equally qualified women higher interest rates and approving them for uh, less in loans than you know uh, comparably quite comparably um, uh, 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 
uh, comparable men. Uh, and you know, this is their credit card is backed by Goldman Sachs. And so, you know, this is one of the most technologically sophisticated companies on the planet, partnering with one of the most prominent banks on the planet, and they can't get it right. And so, you, you just have this sense that this is one of those enduring legacies of redlining and our general approach to the provision of financial services. And if we don't correct for it, um, then I just view it as a massive loss of human potential, to, uh, to be completely frank. And a massive loss of money as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, you know, let's, let's be honest about what we care about here. Um, and tell me, remind me, um, you know, then we're going to go into kind of a broader discussion, but remind me a little bit of, uh, we were talking about this. This summer I watched, uh, I think it's called Miss, Mrs. America or whatever. It's a Netflix show about Phyllis Scheffler and the Equal mm -hmm. Rights Amendment. And, you know, good show if you're bored, watch it. But more importantly, and more relevantly, I was shocked to hear that until what, like the 60s or 70s, it didn't matter how rich you were as a woman, you know, you could literally be the heir to every fortune or the heiress and you couldn't buy your own house or you couldn't get credit cards in your own name. So like walk us through a little bit of that just to like really square the circle of how deeply, deeply effed some of this uh, history has been in the very recent past. And then we'll kind of move through uh, where we think we're going and, and what, what you guys are doing to fix it. Absolutely. I mean, th th this to me is, again, one of those macro things that just doesn't make sense. Women are half the population. And there was a time in history when the role of a woman had a fence around it, and that fence was really the household. And so to me, what that's communicating to half of the potential workforce is, we don't want to use you at all. Uh, it's like, it's like, you know, leaving half your starting team on the bench, it just, it, it just doesn't make sense. And so, um, you know, you, you referenced that it, it was a time when women couldn't get credit cards in their own name. It was a time when they couldn't use capital to purchase homes or whatever sorts of assets they were interested in purchasing. And so I think as we've um, evolved uh, in the right direction, not fast enough um, to where you have more capital going to these, you know, certain demographics of people, we're able to see that human potential really start to contribute both to the, uh, you know, the micro economy in their, in their families, in their communities, and bubbled all the way up to the macro economy. Um, when women started entering the workforce, you saw this massive boon in GDP. Wonder where that came from? Well, it came from us not ignoring half of our workforce. And so, um, you know, you mentioned this earlier, this is a money problem. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's less about, you know, let's be diverse. It's less about um, let's give people a hand up. It's more about doing your job. It's more about generating returns for your shareholders and your limited partners. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, again, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by where things are going. Um, I think uh, never have we been in a moment in um, American history, I don't think, where we've had more permission to think big about where things can go from here. I mean, COVID was basically a wrecking ball um, to the economy. It was a wrecking ball to sort of people's day-to-day -day lives. And when we rebuild from that, we don't have to do it the way we used to. It can be done in a way that's very different. Um, and when you've got all these banks that are provisioning billions for losses in their loan portfolio, yeah, yeah that opportunity is really there. I love it. Um, it reminds me of, in the immortal words of 
of the very controversial Kanye West, you know, I'm racist and that I only like green faces, right? Like what we're talking about is diversity, gender, all these things, but what it all rolls up into is when you're only focused on investing in 30% of the population, that means you're leaving 70% of the profits on the table. And I don't know about you, but like that's a lot of money to not have in my pocket because yachts do not buy themselves, you know? So, so I agree. Um, so, so here's the problem. You diagnosed it brilliantly um, and very, very thoroughly. So what is Good Tree Capital's role in like fixing all of this? Like, like Ayala fix my life. What are you doing? <laughs> Not on my watch. <laughs> so, um, so we, uh, I mentioned I had this experience with my father um, and, you know, I go back to Seattle, do all of this research. And when I come to this realization of, you know, how, uh, how the market is structured, um, I sit down with some data scientist developer colleagues of mine. And the question that I posed to them was, how can we accurately evaluate credit worthiness without using the sorts of, uh, you know, factors that typically bias decision making that have no predictive quality. And so we spent about a year and a half answering that question. Uh, we started by filing a FOIA with the Small Business Administration and asked them for records on every loan that they backed since the year 2000. And um, that produced about 1.2 million records that they sent us on a CD-ROM. Thank you, SBA. Um, and uh, we enriched that data and fed it through what's called a random forest regression analysis. And what that told us was of the over 450 factors in any given loan profile, these are the factors that are most predictive in determining whether someone is likely to default on a loan. And not, not just you know, what those factors are, but what is their relative importance to each other? What is the weighting of each one? And once you understand that across all factors, you can build a mathematical equation, an algorithm. Um, and that's what we did. And when we tested it you know, all those years back, we learned that we could with 98.2% accuracy determine whether someone is likely to default on a loan. And so my view really at that point was that we built a bazooka. And the question was, where do we aim it? Um, uh, the initial approach was to sell this to banks. You know, I thought to myself, oh, I've got this amazing capability. It's innovating on the bulk of your business model. It's you know, more accurate, which is really important. Um, but it's also faster and cheaper to scale. So I just thought it would be a win-win a for all parties involved. But, you know, I was meeting with these banking executives here in Chicago primarily, and really what I was trying to sell them was sort of in one ear, out the other, glassed over eyes. Uh, I just didn't find a whole lot of luck. And so my view was um, I was sort of at a fork in the road. I could continue trying to sell these very conservative banks who have this long sell cycle, or I could do something different. And to me, cannabis represented a really interesting opportunity unto itself. Um, it is an industry, if you look nationwide, across all the people who've gone through the very sort of tedious process of acquiring a license from their state, 80% of those operators who touch the plant don't have bank accounts, which to me is insane. Billions and billions of dollars, 80% of that is just sloshing around in the economy in a way that's not really trackable. Um, and so if you think about it, if you don't have a bank account, that means you also don't have access to things banks provide, such as loans. Uh, and so I thought 
if we put our model to work in the cannabis industry, not only are we in a market that is largely underserved, so it's a ton of white space because banks are on the sideline, but cannabis represented that sort of intersectionality of the of access to capital and the ability to build wealth as a result of that access to capital. Let me just give you one short anecdote. If you think about the people who've borne the brunt of cannabis prohibition, you know, the people who've been locked up for having a dime bag, they have a felony on their name, now they can't get a job or a house. You think about that group of people historically, and then you think about the other group of people who own the licenses nationwide, there's virtually no overlap between the two. It's like 4% overlap, actually, between the two. And really what this is, is it, it's a big problem of access to capital because it's an expensive industry to be in. And so my view was, if we use our technology to evaluate the most creditworthy entrepreneurs and businesses in the cannabis space, then we can provide these talented entrepreneurs who are looked over by everybody else with the ability to really grow and scale their businesses and prosper in this industry and therefore take a larger chunk of what will be a massive wealth creation for this country. I mean, think about it. Think about where alcohol was prior to prohibition and where it is now. That's cannabis today and we're still in day one. So I just think it's a really critical period. Um, and we've seen with our portfolio companies just how that wealth creation mechanism works. Um, one of my borrowers in Massachusetts, again, in Massachusetts, just had a big, um, or is about to have a big uh, a grand opening. And it's just a signal of uh, what is possible when you really reimagine and rethink how you evaluate creditworthiness and where capital goes. Absolutely. And um, before we kind of jump into some questions, which if, if you haven't dropped questions into the Q&A, please, please do, because um, we'll have a few minutes for those. But um, talk a little bit, right? You, you touched on this, you know, when you mentioned, you know, the guys who were in jail for, for dime bags. And I think for a lot of people, it's a little bit hard to wrap your head around sort of how targeted, right, the war on drugs was. And it wasn't so much a war on drugs as it was on like hippies and then just sort of flat out black people, right? And, and you know, the, 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 the stark comparison that I think most of us have heard of, although even I off the top of my head can't recall it, maybe you can, is sort of the difference between the, the you know, sentencing guidelines for crack versus cocaine, which like as any good child of the 80s knows, they're the same drug. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, I mean, you're hitting the the nail on the head. This was um, this uh, was really it became a really big strategy under Nixon. Um, he wanted to attack his two biggest enemies, and his two biggest enemies were hippies and black people in his own mind. And in order to do that, he thought, "Let me crack down on cannabis. Let me um, focus uh, enforcement in communities of color." Uh, and so what you, what you ended up with was really a sort of uh, uh, um, a reality nationwide where although African-Americans consume roughly, uh, roughly the same, slightly lower on average cannabis than white people, um, African-Americans nationwide are four times more likely to be arrested for it. And then once arrested for it, um, more likely to be convicted and sentenced to longer uh, sentences. The same basic dynamic is true for crack cocaine and cocaine, uh, where the sentencing guidelines pre-Obama was 20x. Uh, if you were caught using coke, <laughs> and you know, coke is a rich man's drug, 
Uh, if you're caught using coke, which is the same exact chemically drug as crack cocaine, you're going to get 120th the sentence as the person who gets caught with crack cocaine. And so you see these kind of imbalances in how um, the laws are enforced, where the laws are enforced, and then what downstream impacts that has on the ability of these communities to become self-sustaining, uh, to become economically vibrant. Again, it just feels like we're shooting ourselves in the foot with these, you know, sort of poor policy decisions. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was not an endorsement of doing cocaine or crack cocaine. We're just pointing out the disparities. Um, exactly. And then, Joe, do you do you want to come to the questions? Absolutely. <laughs> Have Absolutely. To say the um, and then, and then uh, Joe, do you, do you want to jump in with some of the questions? Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted to, you know, again, not endorsement crack cocaine. No, I'm just kidding. So um, we were, we've been doing a, a series of, of cannabis talks with a partner, uh, ETFMG, and in those conversations, I've been learning a tremendous amount, but one of the things that came up that you started talking about was procuring the licenses for dispensaries, the cost going into actually setting up one of these businesses, and the fact that the majority of them are owned by a very small amount of businesses and people. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that and then how you, you see, you know, if you, you know, the companies that I guess we don't need to name, but everyone knows who they are in the cannabis space, how you either work with them to get those licenses back or work with local legislatures to make sure that more licenses are able to be procured. Right, right. So, you know, I'll, I'll use Illinois as an example. So under the medical uh, legalization bill that passed um, seven years ago, I, I think, um, you had to have $2 million in escrow if you wanted to pursue a cultivation license, and you had to have half a million dollars in escrow if you wanted to pursue a dispensary. My, my first question is, who the hell has that kind of money? Apart from the top 1% of Illinoisians, I mean, who has that kind of liquid capital? And so uh, this is the state erecting a barrier for broad-based participation in the industry. But if you put the state aside, there's sort of inherent cost to you know, pursuing a license and standing your business, irrespective of what the state does, um, particularly in the application process. Um, you've got consultants, you've got lawyers, you've got security experts that are literally charging people six figures just to be able to put together an application. Um, and then, you know, once you put together that application, you've got to demonstrate that you have real estate where you're going to operate the business. And often these um, states take, you know, anywhere from 12 to 18 months to make a decision. So you can have money going out for real estate that you've leased or purchased with nothing coming in. You shelled out six figures for all the consultants you needed to put the application together. And then, and then you might be told, no, you don't get a license. So, you know, if you're, um, you know, the guy on the street who's selling the dime bag and you look at that equation, it just doesn't make any sense to you. But if you, if you're, you know, some wealthy tycoon um, and you've got money to waste, then yeah, you're going to throw some money behind trying to get a license. And so um, in my opinion, not only do you have the structural cost, you have the cost that states often erect that create really immense barriers for people's participation. The way we've try to um, solve this problem is both uh, through uh, policy advocacy as well as putting our money where our mouths are. So um, from a policy perspective in Illinois, um, when Pritzker was running for governor, he made it very clear that he wanted Illinois to be the most equity-centric market in the nation, which is another way of saying 
He wants the people who've historically borne the brunt of uh, prohibition to be the main uh, uh, benefactors of the wealth that's being created in the industry. And so when I heard this, I immediately reached out to the legislators who were writing the bill. And my goal was really three part. It was one, to reduce to the furthest extent possible the state erected cost to um, enter the industry, to increase uh, state financing of these equity licensees, and to also create an environment that is favorable for investors, for banks who want to provide capital to the same crop, uh, or crop of, um, of uh, licensees. And so we had a ton of success in, uh, in our advocacy at the state level. And uh, you know, even though Illinois in passing and executing its bill has had some hiccups along the way, I think the trajectory is probably more successful than any state in the country in terms of creating a context that allows broad-based participation um, in the cannabis industry that reflects the diversity, either racial or gender diversity in the, in the state. So then, and something I'll, I'll leave the conversation on, it's you can dive into it as, as far as you like or not, but we're less than a month out from the election. Um, what, would a, what would a change in the presidency, what would a Biden presidency mean for your company's ability to operate on a more national level. You know, we're talking about Illinois, we're talking sort of state by state. Governor Cuomo has said that he wants, you know, cannabis uh, legalization to come in the next um, session for, for the state. But what would it mean for you to operate on a, on a sort of federal level? And, and what, were, what are you sort of looking for in, in a new administration for specifically for cannabis? So there are two hypotheticals here, either Trump wins or Biden wins. Um, if I think about the experience of the industry under Trump's administration, it's, it's been um, muddy, I think is probably the best word to use. So coming out of the Obama administration, we had what was called the Cole Memo, and this was the Justice and the Treasury Department saying, hey, banks, if you want to capitalize this industry, provide any services to this industry, just follow these principles and you won't, we, won't, we won't come after you, was essentially the message of it. Trump comes into office, Jeff Sessions spends his first year in the office honoring this, and then January of his second year, he does an about face and he says, we, don't know, we no longer care about that. So it's kind of muddied the waters in terms of how we think about what rules to follow in order to provide services to the industry. But at the same time, this is a bipartisan industry. If you look at the SAFE, uh, the, uh, the SAFE Act, um, the SAFE Banking Act, which just passed the House, it passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. It currently has overwhelming bipartisan support in the Senate, but it's stuck in committee right now because COVID, because there's lots of other things that are sort of happening and really taking the time and sucking all the oxygen out of the room. So it's not as though um, this is a starkly partisan issue where Democrats feel one way and Republicans feel another way. I just think the barrage of things that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, whether, you know, <laughs> yeah, I won't even go into that, that we deal on a day-to-day -day basis is really distracting lawmakers and um, the executive branch from, you know, doing their job. Um, under a Biden administration, I expect things would be clarified quite a bit. Um, the reason I expect things to be clarified quite a bit is because the Safe Banking Act is championed primarily by Democrats. Even though it's got bipartisan support, really the, 
the main sponsors and champions of the bill are on the Democratic side. Um, Joe Biden's uh, VP, uh, uh, Kamala, she is a co-sponsor of the MORE Act, which is not just thinking about how do we increase access to financial services for the cannabis industry, but how do we create restorative justice for those people who have criminal records for the dime bag, while at the same time, you've got all these other people who are making billions of dollars now that the industry is legal. And so the fact that she is a co-sponsor on this, to me says that this is an administration that is interested in normalizing this industry, getting out of the way of the industry so that it can thrive. Well, Siki and Sarah, this is this has been fantastic. Um, I just I sat back for one point, just listened to the whole thing, and it just I'm going to listen back to this. There's a wealth of information here, and I can't wait to share it with the rest of the Salt community. So again, want to say thank you, Sarah, for moderating. Siki, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, I missed the memo on having a first name with an S, but I'll, <laughs> I'll figure it out. Um, but again, thanks so much.